1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandments unsustained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The children are dismissed for Children's Church. Hopefully you've turned with me in your Bibles as our kids are, are departing to First Timothy chapter 6. Now, we kicked off our series last week entitled Fit Church, exploring nine marks of a healthy church. Now, we see these as the essentials of a church. Now, there are other essentials, prayer, worship, all of these are seen throughout. Um, we believe, you know, see throughout the New Testament, but we're focusing on some of the lesser known um, aspects of what it means to be a fit church, because we are the body of Christ. As believers in Christ, we are the body. But as a body, how much, how much are we in shape? I mean, do you feel like you are just personally in shape or out of shape, spiritually speaking? I'd say many of us are spiritually flabby. And we need to get in shape. And what we do is we go back to the Word of God and what God has for us. And one of the ways that we need to make sure that we are following God rightly is that we are following and adhering to his word, which means that we need to understand the scripture and study God intently. Because if we can't understand accurately who God is, we have a hard time understanding who we are. You know, it's interesting, as we're, we're getting into this text, I'm reminded of a, a GPS and uh, I, I know many of us in this room have used the global positioning system to give directions. We don't even think about it anymore. You plug in the address, and it sends you on your way. And I, I shared a story a little while ago, and I, it bears sharing again. But I, was, I, I came upon this story about a woman named Sabine, who lives in uh, Brussels, Belgium. And she went to get in her car to pick up her friend at the airport, like any other time. Um, and the, the airport was just 38 miles away. And she got into her car and she plugged into the, the address into her GPS, which told her to drive south, taking her turn by turn all the way down to Zagreb, Croatia. Now, that may not seem that big of a deal to you. And if you're not that familiar with geography, let me explain something to you. It took her approximately um, 900 miles off course took her through eight separate countries, and it took her what should have been 45 minutes to an hour drive, ended up taking her two days. And during her odyssey, she stopped two times to get gas. She slept for a few hours on the side of the road and even suffered a minor car accident. She you know it sounds weird, but she was distracted, and she didn't realize that her GPS was off. 
Now, see, when our GPS is off, we're, we're going to be lost, and that's what happened to her. But see, you know, many of us have an internal GPS that gives us and teaches us thoughts about who God is, but according to the Word of God, that GPS is marred. It's got a virus. That virus is sin. Matter of fact, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 23, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but ends in death. So we think that we have the market cornered on who God is. But see, it's the Word of God that acts as an antidote to that virus that clouds our internal GPS. So we have to go to the Word of God. Now, what, what does that mean for us today? And why do I share that with you? And, and how does this help us be a fit church? Well, let, me, let me explain it this way. If we are to follow God rightly, to go in the right direction, we must have right thoughts of God. And in order for us to have right thoughts of God, we have to rightly divide the Word of God. So let me say that again. In order for us to follow God rightly, we have to have right thoughts of God. In order for us to have right thoughts of God, we must rightly divide the Word of God. And that study of who God is is called theology. And the second mark of a fit church is having biblical or theology, biblical theology or theology that is based on the Bible, rightly understood. So today, we're going to jump into theology. Now, theology might seem a, a big word or something that's far away from us. It doesn't have effect on our day, daily life. But every single person in this room, without exception, has a theology. A way that we think and understand who God is. Either it's from our parents or it's through our education, the books that we read, the experiences we have, how the media communicates to us, we all, without exception, have a theology. The question is, is our theology that we have received correct, and how do we know so? I'm reminded of a conversation I had just a couple weeks ago with a relative of mine. I was in Michigan, and I was sitting across from him at a picnic table, and he had grown up in church and has since completely left the faith, and I started to share with him who Christ is. And he, he basically wanted to stop me, and he kept saying, I know what I believe. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you know what you believe. But is what you believe right? And that's the question that we all must ask ourselves. Are our thoughts about God right? Do we have thoughts that inform and direct our lives that are based on the Word of God? And how do we know? That's what this passage is going to show us today, is not only how to think rightly, but what thinking rightly and having right theology does for our everyday lives, both spiritually, emotionally, how we can think, how we can live, how we can avoid troubles. That's what we're going to look at today, is how we can think right thoughts about God so we might live rightly for God, experiencing the joy of God by rightly dividing the Word of God. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come into your presence wanting your word to us. For without your word, we would have nothing. It is your word that reveals who you are and what it is that you have done on our behalf. Lord, help us to think rightly about you as we look to receive and interpret and divide and and apply your word to our lives, that your name might resound and echo 
with the glory of your name and that our lives might increase in joy and understanding with you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's really jump into our text for today. Actually, let's, uh, jumping into our text, we start off in verse 11. Now, uh, Paul is writing this text to young Timothy. Now, Timothy is serving as a pastor at a church in Ephesus, and he's a young pastor, an uh, elder, and he's serving this church, and um, he's a young man. Scholars differ on exactly how young that he was. Some say he was in his 20s. Some say that he was in his late 30s, early 40s, but he was considered to be a young man, and he is writing and instructing Timothy how to live and run this church in the midst of Ephesus, which is on the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. And he encountered a lot of problems. Ephesus was a, uh, a headquarters for um, Artemis worship. You had the Greek gods and goddesses, and there were many there. I mean, um, many, much sin had permeated the church. There, were, there was some wild services going on, and people just standing up in the middle of service and talking and causing all kinds of trouble. And he's trying to instruct Timothy on how to live righteously and how to deal with a lot of the problems, and not only deal with the problems, but how to direct and order his own life. Because he, like anybody else, was susceptible to the temptations and the the peer pressure of everything that was going on around him. So Paul, who had known and served in this church himself, is writing and instructing him on how to live and how to act. And in doing so, he is helping him think rightly about who God is. Because even the early followers of Jesus recognized how Paul's writings were inspired of God. And that they were divine scripture and, in essence, right theology for them to apply to their daily lives. And he starts off in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Now, Paul calls him a man of God. It's a designation to show that he had been set apart for a ministry, that he had been consecrated and set apart for a purpose. And then he gives him a command. He says, flee these things. Now, the word flee is in the present tense, imperative mood, and the active voice. It suggests repeated or habitual action. Now, what are these, these things that he is to forsake? I want you to look back in the preceding verses. Look back at chapter 6 and look at verse three for a moment. Paul says to him, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree and does not agree with the sound, and the word there in Greek is actually healthy, healthy um, words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, th- many pangs. Now, he says, at, again, at the onset of verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee. It's an imperative, a command. Flee. And he's saying that this teaching that I'm giving to you is to guard you from all kinds of challenges. That's the first point I want you to write down, that biblical theology is so important to our lives because it guards us from all kinds of challenges, all sorts of challenges that we face in this life. When we are doing what God wants us to do, we are prevented from suffering all kinds of consequences for serious, serious sins. When we are following what God wants us to do, it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle, we're not going to have trials, we're not going to have troubles or temptations, but it means that we're going to be able to avoid a lot of stupid things that can affect our lives. I think all of us in this room know what it's like when we have made a poor choice and sinned against God, and that led to a a greater sin, and a greater sin, and it snowballs, and then we find ourselves stuck. Wouldn't it have been better not to have done that to begin with? See, isn't that wisdom? It's the application of others' experience so that we may not fall into the same traps and go through the same things. Isn't that why we we look toward other people and see the mistakes they made so that we avoid them? See, this, this true theology, this theology based on the Bible, guards us, guards us from all kinds of faith challenges. Now, studying theology guards us against several different things. First of all, it guards us from dubious doctrines. Dubious doctrines. Now, I want to go back. We're going to camp on verse 3 through 10 here just for a, a brief period of time where he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine in verse 3 and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, all of these different things. Now, if you go back, unhealthy craving or not sound doctrine. These are dubious doctrines that can't support uh, weight. And it's interesting. I saw this worked out this past week. I don't know if you saw this in the news or not, but there was a pastor in South Africa that advocated and forced his church to eat grass. I'm not making this up. And then he forced them because he said it was an act of faith, they were to drink gasoline. Not even joking. And he says then, this is what he said, many of you don't believe that this is fuel or petrol, but I just want you to believe, he said, if you look at the bottle, it looks like apple juice, but with the flame that it will become, it will be enough evidence for you to have faith. In the book of Luke 137, it says nothing is impossible for God. That's stupid! It's plain dumb because it's, it's not based on the Word of God. He misinterpreted the Word of God. He took it out of context. He was presuming upon God, and he was using it as a means of manipulation to get people to do what he wanted them to do. That is dubious doctrine, and we go to the Word of God, and the more that we become familiar with the Word of God and how to divide it rightly, we can avoid stupidity. And false doctrine that causes and, and rips apart the faith of many different individuals. That's why he's saying there's unsound teaching going on, Timothy. And you need to be able to interpret it rightly and see it for what it is and speak out against it. It's dubious doctrine. You have to speak out against it. 
he, biblical theology also guards us not just from dubious doctrines, but from divisive discussions. Divisive discussions. Look back at verse 4 for a moment. He has a healthy craving for controversy. A healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and, controver- and constant friction. Words are powerful things. And there are some people who feel it their duty to create division in the body of Christ, and such people are demonic. It's demonic. They want to divide the body of Christ, and God wants us to be unified, to be unified in the, the bond of peace, that we might be one as God, Father, and Spirit, Son, the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. We are to be one as a body so that the world may know who Christ is. But we have to recognize when false teachers come in that seek to divide the body of Christ and promote divisive discussions. Discussions that are meant to tear apart the body. I've been in part of churches and leadership teams where we had these things, exactly what Timothy is talking about, brought into the church and it divided the body. And it was so obvious to us that it was false, but many people get caught up in it. We have to be very, very careful because we, and make sure that we are having biblical theology that it might guard us from divisive discussions. Now, good theology also guards us against depraved dispositions. Depraved dispositions. Look at verse 5. They promote constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining imagining that godliness is a means of gain. See, these people were manipulating the body of Christ in order to fill their pockets with cash. But they had depraved dispositions. They didn't want the furtherance of God's kingdom. They were using it as a means of making money. Now, I'm reminded this past week, um, there was also an article that came out about Pastor Chris Oyekaholme. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I could be wrong. Um, He's in Nigeria, and he constantly refers to himself as the man of God. Now, his wife, who is who also calls herself a pastor, recently filed for divorce from him, and he's at a megachurch accusing him of adultery and unreasonable behavior, unreasonable behavior. And in a message to his church, he said this, You don't know who a man of God is. I don't go in that direction. I wasn't accused of the things you said, nor did I commit those stupid things that you said, and I don't need to go into that level in such discussions. There are preachers and there are men of God. I'm not a preacher. I'm a man of God, and I go in the way I'm asked to go. You have to understand something about a man of God. A man of God is not just someone who worships God or preaches God. A man of God is handpicked by God, set on course by God. He says, if you study the scriptures, you will not find one man of God who goes against God, sinning against God. No man of God does something against the Lord. Are you hearing me? A man of God is set on a course. There is a type of life that he is given. Now, what he's saying there is he's manipulating people. He's saying that I'm a man of God. A man of God can't do the things that you're saying. So you can't question me about it. That's just stupid. Straight up stupid. Because we see in the Word of God that there are men of God that can sin against God. And we all can sin. And see, he's using that as a form of manipulation for the church. He's trying to get them not to question him. But the reality is, is that he's not truly following God. And he's using that as a means of declaring himself innocent and above question and suspicion. 
So we have to understand that it, it can guard. If we have bad theology, it can guard and we can hide behind bad theology because it's really hiding our depraved disposition and desires. And we all can do it. We can manipulate and use the Word of God to get what we want. You ever done that? I've seen it happen all the time. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did it. They did it all the time with Jesus. And Jesus always cut right through the garbage. See, we have to make sure that we have good theology, a right understanding of the Word of God. And we need to study the Word of God to understand what it means. I'm also reminded, and many of you have probably seen this, this past, uh, actually a couple weeks ago, we saw Victoria Osteen on TV. I don't know if you saw the quote that she made, but she says, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy, she continued. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for you because that's what makes God's happy. God happy. Amen? Sorry, I almost threw up in my mouth. See, that's dubious doctrine. That is divisive. That is not according to the word of God. Now, those are easy targets. But there are that happening within our church all the time. When people promote division or slander or gossip or contention, when they berate different people within the church, when they're secretly talking about them behind their back. And we all be guilty of this, and we have to repent of it. But it guards us against a depraved disposition, and it constantly is washing our mind and putting a mirror in front of our face, asking who we are in the sight of God. We have to understand that such bad doctrine leads to not just dubious doctrines or bad theology leads to dubious doctrines, divisive discussions, and a depraved disposition, but it leads to definite destruction. Definite destruction. That's the next point you need to write down. Definite destruction is where it leads. I'm not sure if we have a slide for it or not, but that's letter D in your notes. It is definite destruction. Just like it says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says it's vitally important, so vitally important that it, it can damn someone. He says in Galatians 1, 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, which means damned. It's that serious of getting it right. Getting it right. We have a tendency to be fast and loose and think everything's okay. And it's interesting to me that we're fast and loose on some things, but we're not fast and loose on other things. Let's take our, how we deal with theology and how we are fast and loose with it, and let's apply it to our pilot of the 747 we're in. And he says, I'm going to be fast and loose in how I land this plane. How detailed are you going to be at that period of time? Very. Why? Because life is at stake. We don't realize that the same concept applies to theology, that we have to have the lines clearly drawn and understand who God is and how to interpret and how to apply his word to our lives. Because we have a tendency to think there is a, a right way to live, and a, the reality is it's not according to God's word. That's why I quoted Proverbs fourteen twenty three: There is a way that seems right to a man but ends in death. There's a way that seems right and ends in death. We have to change and understand and look at our thoughts of God. 
I'm reminded of a conversation that Mark Dever, a fellow Gordon Conwell graduate, he's pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and he was talking about how we have a misconception of who God is. And he says that he was speaking at a doctoral seminar, and he talks about how he encountered someone with a very wrong understanding of God. He says this, I had made a statement in a doctoral seminar about God. Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think of God rather differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise but not meddling. Compassionate but never overpowering. Ever so resourceful but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how I like to think about God. My reply, he says, was a bit sharper than I intended. He said, Thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. But we are concerned to know what go- who God is really, or who God really is, not simply about who you are. See? See, he was describing who he wanted God to be, not who God was. And reality was that he was describing himself. See, we have, we have to make sure that we are thinking about God correctly. That's why A.W. Tozer once said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. It's not about you, it's about him. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he has at a given time, what he may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He goes on and he says, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And he concludes the thought, Without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God, and the weightiest word in any language is the very word for God. What we think about God determines how we live. Now we see that right theology guards us from all kinds of challenges, but it also grows our character. It grows our character. I'd like to look back at the text when he says, pursue, look back at verse 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. See, these are virtues that we are meant to pursue. In fact, the word for pursue in Greek is the imperative mood and the active voice. You are to commanded to pursue this. It is not optional. I, I don't know how to change our thoughts about who God is, that we think we can have Jesus and everything else is optional. That's not how God has made it to be. You can't just have the fire insurance policy with God and just the liability. There is no such thing in Scripture at all. It is all or nothing with God. He wants an undivided heart. And he's commanding us to pursue with all that we are. And it's active, the understanding of not just once, not 30 years ago, now. Well, you could say, well, I used to serve in that way. He's saying, are you pursuing now? Are you pursuing now? What is your heart like now? Where is your heart with God now? Are you growing? He's saying, I want you to pursue. I want you to grow. Are you growing? 
in your walk with God? Why aren't you growing? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is it straight up disobedience? Have we allowed sin in? Have we got away from the word of God and the people of God and, and fasting and praying and, and, and witnessing to other people about who God is? Have we walked away from God? Have we gotten cold? Have we let little things creep in and, and eat at our heart, such as the entertainment of this world and distracting ourselves with all kinds of hobbies? What have we done to turn away from God? God is wanting us to grow as believers. But how do we grow? See, we can see here that he wants us to hunt. That's what the word pursue means. The idea is hunt for it, look for it, hunt for righteousness, which is not the righteousness God gives. Rather, it is the kind of righteousness which is is described by right living. Right living means pursuing a life of integrity. Here it's used in the ethical sense of demands laid upon a person who has trusted in Christ. In other words, we are to walk and live live out what it is we believe. We're also to hunt for godliness. And the, the Greek word here is used to describe one paying homage or reverence. It's the inner response to the things of God. The idea is yielding to the promptings of God in our life. Has God prompted you to forsake a sin? To pursue righteousness? What has God prompted you to do? Did you hit ignore? See, if you, if you receive it, then you're going to grow more like God because you're growing in your obedience. When you ignore it, you are stopping and stunting your growth with God. He wants us to grow not only in godliness, but in faith or the quality of becoming more and growing in our relationship with Jesus, trusting him in greater ways. We're continue to walk with him, growing and trusting in who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. That's what we are to do. We're also to grow in love, which is a constant theme in Paul's letters. That we're to make love our aim. We're to learn to love one another, to live and love like God lives, to be sacrificial, to see past personalities, to see past difficult situations. We're to commit to be loving one another. And we're also to be steadfast. The idea is patient endurance, holding on. We're to patiently endure trials, not collapse underneath them. We're to fight on, endure hardship, endure persecution, fight on for the faith. We're also to pursue gentleness, which we have learned in the past is power under control, which we're not to fly off the handle with one another in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches. We're to be gentle in difficult situations. Now, what does all this mean to us? How can I boil this down to one thing? In other words, it means this. God is going to grow our character, but we do so both focusing on our integrity. Focus on your integrity. Integrity is who you are when the lights are off, when no one is watching. It means being upright and applying these things to your life. If we're to grow our character, it means focusing on the integrity. We need to live lives of integrity. There's a story that I just read the other day about how um, some thieves broke into a department store and they switched the tags on a lot of the stuff that was there. So a 6,000 diamond ring, they switched to the cubic zirconia, which was 50 bucks. So here the cubic zirconia is now $6,000 and what is really valuable is actually 50 bucks. And, and the idea is, is that's what we have done with the world. We've allowed the world to switch tags and say what's valuable. And we are paying an arm and a leg for something that the world says is valuable, but really is junk. 
And we have an underestimated and undervalued what God says is valuable. And the world says is not. See, God says that integrity is valuable. And we see today that people are ready to sacrifice their integrity for 15 minutes worth of fame. That's why Jesus said, what good is it if a man will gain the whole world and lose his soul? What can a man exchange for the price of his soul? We have to focus on integrity. Notice, we're also to fight on faithfully. Fight on faithfully. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. It's another command in the present tense, to carry on. It's the idea of a contest, to strive to, to struggle, to fight. The word includes effort put forth in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, the Greek word, it, does, it means to struggle, to fight on in an athletic contest, not to give up. And it's the good fight that all people of faith are commanded to fight. Growing our character means to be focusing on our integrity and fighting on faithfully. We're to fight. Are you fighting right now? Are you sitting on the sideline? God doesn't put us on the sideline. God puts us in the game. We're fighting to press on despite adversity. Right now I'm reading Winston Churchill's biography. Fascinating guy. And if anybody understood fighting, it was him. That guy knew how to fight. He didn't give up ever. And he said this, he was talking about success, and he said this, I don't have this quote on the board, but you might want to write this down. Success, he's defining it. He said, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Let me be the first to tell you, we're all going to fail. The question is, is what do you do after a failure? Do you give up and quit? Pack up your toys and go home? Or do you keep fighting? See, part of the Christian life is endurance. It's not always about the big churches and all of the the press. It's about being faithful despite adversity. Notice in Ephesians chapter 6, in describing the full armor of God, the word that is used over and over and over again is the word stand. Not press on, not march. Stand. Because adversity is going to come. But you have to hold fast to fight on. It's to stand against adversity. We have to make sure that we are fighting on faithfully. And under having a definition, I like that definition of success, going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. He failed all the time, constantly, but he never gave up. Matter of fact, in speaking to a group of school children of the school he graduated from, Harrow School, on October 29, 1941, he was addressing them. So this is at the very onset of World War II, or actually in the, in the early stages of World War II, and Great Britain was already experiencing a great deal of hostility and animosity and warfare. And he, in speaking about the war, he said this, Surely, from this period of ten months, this is the lesson, the war had already been going on for ten months, with Great Britain directly involved. He says this, Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never, ever, ever give in. And see, that's how we have to apply to faith. 
We are to never give in, no matter what the culture might throw at us. No matter what we see going on in our workplaces or in our families, we don't give in. Why? Because God said we're going to be victorious. It's, we're going to win. The end has already been determined from the beginning. We might get down. We might seem out. And all hope might seem lost. But God is guaranteed to win. The score is, is fixed. It's done. We're not, argue, we're not fighting for victory. And our happiness is not based on what's going on politically in the world. We are assured, assured of victory. We need to stand and live in the light of that fact. Not get bent all out of shape for everything that we see going on in the news. That's easy to do. That means we're up and down. We have to have our feet firmly entrenched and set on the gospel of Christ. And make sure that we never, ever, ever give in. Words, though, spoken in World War II are spiritually true of us today. And something that I believe that Paul would echo to young Timothy as he pastored in the midst of great difficulty in the city of Ephesus. He was to never give in, never give up, to hold on. He uses a similar approach and look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now the words take hold, the idea is of laying hold, a hold of something, getting a good grip on it. We are to grasp a hold of the eternal life that God has given unto us. And in other words, he's telling us to fix on eternity. We're to focus on integrity, fight on faithfully, but to fix our eyes on eternity. Remember, we have to fight on. That this world is not our home. This is not the end. That God's going to bring everything to its conclusion, ordained conclusion. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are, that are seen, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is preparing for us and working in us and through us an eternal weight of glory. We're to fix our eyes on eternity, to know that he's going to come back, that he's going to reward those who follow him, and he's going to judge the wicked, which also should cause us to sorrow. Sorrow at what we see our family and friends doing. See, biblical theology guards us from all kinds of challenges grows our character, and also guides us to a good confession. Guides us to a good confession. Let's look at verse 12 again. He talks about when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, scholars disagree exactly on what the good confession really refers to. Some believe that it's something that he said at his baptism. Others believe it's something that was said at his ordination as he was going into ministry. Still others say it was something that he said in the midst of persecution when people were questioning him about his faith that he held on. I liken it to believe and uh, believe it to be that he uh, confessed Christ. This is his confession of Christ at his moment of salvation. But any of these could be in line. The idea is, though, um, is confessing Christ. That he is, that good theology will help us to remain steadfast and hold true to who he is and guide us to a good confession. Now, from this confession results a few different things. First of all, it involves a charge to fulfill. A charge to fulfill. Paul goes on to say, he goes, I charge you. I charge you, in verse 13, to follow Christ. Christ. 
God has charged us to do what God has made us to do. Are you doing what God has made you to do? Are you doing it? What is it that God has made you to do? What has he created you to do? Or are you, are you too busy going off into sin? Or are you doing what God has called and made and purposed you to do? Are you doing it? And if you're not, why not? What is keeping you from it? Now, it could be raising your children to follow Christ. It could be sharing with your coworkers. Don't always think it has to be the most big and mighty thing. It's being faithful in the little things. The everyday things that God is calling us to do in a charge to make his name known in every aspect of our lives. Secondly, this confession results in a commandment to follow. Look at verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, scholars differ exactly as to what this means. It either is a baptismal charge or an ordination charge or the faith as a whole, which is seen as a new law. But I think that it is in line with the previous point and that the commandment is for Timothy to persevere in his own faith and ministry so as to save himself and others, as it says in chapter 4, verse 16. Keeping that thought in line. That he's giving us, the idea is, is that we're to follow Christ faithfully for all of our life until we go home or he comes again. To press on. It's a commandment to follow Now let's take a look at the phrase in verse 14. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now the word there for the appearing in Greek means manifestation, appearance. The word was used in the language of contemporary Hellenistic religious um, ideals for the self-disclosure of a god or king. The idea is, is that he is going to be revealed in all of his glory. That he's going to be disclosed when the whole world will see him for who he is. See, this, this charge or this confession gives us a charge to fulfill, a commandment to follow, and a coming that is future. Talking about the second coming of Christ, that he will come again, that he is coming and he will reveal himself in all of his glory. And you have no idea what awesome is until you can think of that. Our imagination can't even conceive of how great that is. The problem that we have today is that our minds have become dull to the very things of God, that we can't take in the things of God. We have no concept of prayer, of fasting, of spiritual discipline, of meditation, of quiet, to understand what the saints of old valued, and to see that those are where the power lies, and how we live and find our fulfillment and success in and with Christ. And they were focused on the coming of Christ. And we see now, when we think of the coming of Christ, we picture guys with placards on the front of them saying the end is near. We think that they're nut jobs. But the reality is is that he is coming back. And we can't let that detract us from the understanding that Jesus is returning and it will be a glorious appearing. And that confession that we have, that confessing that Jesus is the Christ, is also an acknowledgement that he is coming again to make all things right. It's a coming that is future that we hold on to. All of the suffering that, we have, suffering that we have endured will find its validation and we will be rewarded. See, when we see him for who he is, it will be a great day. It will be a time of praise and adulation of Jesus. See, good theology glories in the person of Christ. It glories in the person of Christ. I'm going to go through this point rather quickly. See, we glory in his passion. 
See, that confession is referring back to the belief that Christ died for his sins. What is your confession? Have you made a confession of Christ? What do you believe about Christ? And Jesus comes to you just like he did to Peter, and he says, who do you say I am? What do you do with Jesus? Do you know what he has done for you? I mean, his passion, and I mean his, his death, burial, and resurrection, what he went through on the cross, that enabled us to see who God is, what our sin required, and how we could have salvation. See, we glory in his passion and what it is that he had done. I remember working with a junior high boy, and we were doing a paint job someplace in a, in a, a chapel somewhere, and he goes, you know, if I could go back in time, I would prevent Jesus from dying on the cross. I went, not me. Because it had to happen. He had to die. He understood that, that he died for you and for me. Do you realize that he died for you? That he gave his life to pay for your sins? That's something that we should stop and holy reverential awe. We glory in his passion. We also glory in his perfections. What I mean by perfections is this. It's a theological term used to describe the attributes or the characteristics of God. Notice in our text, he is the one who is the blessed and only sovereign. You know, it's interesting in that word sovereign, it's not a derived power that he receives that is conveyed upon him. We think of, of people um, like, for example, the president of the United States, he has power, but before he was president, he didn't have power. It's a power that was conveyed upon him by the people of the United States of America through an election process. But here, he is a sovereign that has no derived power from anyone else, but is powerful in who he is, in his essence. That he is the only sovereign. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light. You ever had a bright light? You ever woken up in the middle of the night and someone turned on a light and you're like, oh, this is light that you can't even stand in. If you were to walk in from the brightest light of the sun, you, cannot even, you can't even go in there. It's so bright, so intense, unapproachable light in whom, whom no one has ever seen. He's talking about God and his essence and all his, his power or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we see not only his perfections and glory and his, his passion and his perfections, but in his power, that he has eternal dominion. And not one thing can we do will remove or stop the very power of God or remove or d- uh, totally put down his kingdom. He has all power. That we glory in his passion, his perfections, and his power. And what amazing is, what's amazing about this entire thing for us is this, that God allows us to be participants in his salvation. That he could allow us to have this good confession, to, to be follower of this amazing God, that to know that he would pay the price for our sins, that he would die on the cross for us and see us in our rebellion when we were spiritual terrorists and bring us into the full knowledge of who he is. 
See, this good theology leads us to do all of these different things that I've mentioned today. It guards us against all kinds of challenges. It grows us in our character. It guides us to a confession, and it glories in the person of Christ. We have to have God's GPS. Ours is is faulty. So as we're here today and as we finish our time, let me ask you this. What is your GPS? Is it from the Word of God? Are you living rightly? And remember, to live rightly in the sight of God means reading and understanding and applying the Word of God rightly. If we're to, and we have to have right thoughts about God. In order to have right thoughts about God, to live rightly for God, we must have right thoughts about God and rightly divide the Word of God that we might live the life that He has for us. What are the thoughts that we have that are keeping us from believing, trusting, and doing what he has called us to do? What is it that has kept you from following Christ and, and applying this mark into your life? Is it laziness? Apathy? Straight-up disobedience? Are you living in sin? All of those things distort our GPS. We have to repent and believe God and let that GPS direct our lives for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you have given us your word to clear away the fog and pollution, smog of unbelief that clouds our lives, that seems to permeate every facet of our lives and, and creeps in through media and entertainment and, and our coworkers and our schools and in our workplaces. Lord, help us to to find ourselves on that true foundation, to build ourselves on the teaching, our, our lives on the teaching of your word, that we might live and interpret uh, correctly what it is that you have for us. Lord, help us to have your GPS. Help us to, to, as much as we can, redirect ours and reset ours according to your word as we seek to do what it is that you have purposed and purchased us to do. So Lord, help us to glory in your name. Help us to forsake sin to turn away from it and follow you passionately. We might grow in holiness and our understanding with you and the joy that you have given unto us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.